Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2005. This is your host, Stephen Novella, President of the New England Skeptical Society. And with me tonight, as usual, is Perry DeAngelis. Hello. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And Bob Novella. Hello, everyone. So we're going to start tonight with an in-memoriam, the uh, skeptical movement has lost two people in the, in, since the last broadcast. Uh, the first is Philip Class. Phil Class was the preeminent UFO skeptic. Uh, he almost single-handedly founded the area of UFO skepticism. He was an editor of avionics and aviation week and space technology for over 30 years. Uh, received numerous awards for his work as a journalist, and uh, the latter part of his career was essentially spent debunking Roswell and UFO sightings. Uh, he is author of the book The Real Roswell Crash Saucer Cover-Up, which came out in 1997, uh, and UFO Abductions, A Dangerous Game. Have any of you guys ever met Phil Class? I did not have the I pleasure. met him at the uh, World Skeptics Conference. Right, yeah, I, I met, met him at the same conference. He, he was already you know, fairly old at that time, and that right. was maybe ten years ago. Interesting thing about Phil Class, he is, the, the rumor is that he was the inspiration for the smoking man on the X-Files. This was the, you know, the older agent uh, who seemed to, to know what was really going on with the government and UFOs whose character was constantly smoking. A Phil Class was a was a chain smoker. Ah. Not sure if that's true or not. That was that that was the rumor. So unfortunately he passed away a little over a week ago. Steve, did you know that in seventy six he helped found uh Psycop? That's right. He was one of the founding members of Psycop. Yep. And he, and he served on uh, on its executive council, so that's pretty uh that's pretty Psycop cool. is the committee for the scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal. And he was, you know, a senior research fellow, basically in charge of their UFO uh, research. He wrote me a uh, a very nice letter once, after an article of mine appeared in the New England Journal of Skepticism regarding a, a close vote up at uh, up at Psycop. And mm-hmm. um, he certainly was very concerned about the skeptical movement and, and the direction that uh, some of the people wanted to take it, particularly uh, Dr. Kurtz. We've all had um, criticism of him over the years, and in this particular case, uh, Phil Class agreed with me, and he, he wrote he wrote a a letter stating so. When he asked me to keep it discreet at the time, I did. It's, it's not relevant anymore. Yeah, I mean there has there has been some uh, sort of internal debate about what the relationship should be between organized skepticism, scientific skepticism and organized secular humanism um, and along those related lines to what degree uh, skeptical movements should take on purely religious issues uh, not matters where religion crosses over into science like creationism everyone agrees that that is a, a, a fair topic of our criticism uh, and some of the, the old guard some of the, the real h- hardcore skeptics that are 
are and were within the inner workings of Psychop very much against this, you know, overly merging these two un- these two movements. Whereas Paul Kurtz is very much in favor of of unifying them. In fact, he has done so as far as Psychop is concerned under the Centers for Inquiry or CFI. So, although things you know keep chugging along happily, we're certainly you know uh, very friendly and cooperative with Psychop. It remains a bone of contention within the movement, one without, I think, an objective resolution at this point in time. But Phil Class is definitely on the side of keeping skepticism, scientific skepticism, separate from, from religious issues. Which is certainly the position of the New England Skeptical Society. Yes, that, that has been, we have advocated for that position within our own group and within, and to PSYCOP as well. Why, um, Steve, you're the president, can you articulate for the people why that's our position? Well, um, I could refer you to the article that I wrote about it that was actually published in the Skeptical Inquirer. If you look on their archives, you'll find it. But basically, I think that the way we define scientific skepticism is essentially defending the turf of science and advocating for high standards uh, of you know, rigor and logic and evidence within the realm of science. Religious, religions, however, often deal with issues of um, of value and morals things that are or untestable claims that, that are not within the realm of science they're untestable therefore they're non-scientific we would say that the only thing you could really say about them is that they are not amenable to scientific investigation and that's it whereas the secular humanists deal with a lot of sort of political and social issues surrounding religion and also directly take on the you know faith itself so it's just there's it's a difference in mission. You know, it's it's not our mission to do that. It's also not our interest and not our expertise. Steve, what about morality? That that's always a point that that bugs me a little bit in that uh, a lot of people think that if you don't if you're an atheist, if you don't have religion, then you're you're an amoral wild person just totally hedonistic and and get what you can. I mean, which I think is ridiculous. I don't think you need religion or faith to to be moral. Well, it's it's certainly contradicted by the facts. I mean, there are plenty of people who are atheists or agnostics, who are perfectly good citizens, who are you know moral, ethical people. Right. Uh, I don't think there's even any positive correlation between a religiosity and morality. And I think it gets down to also a distinction between morality and ethics. Ethics are essentially. Uh, a system of behavior, rights, and privileges that we uh, can ag- mutually agree upon as members of a civilized society. We shouldn't hurt each other, or steal from each other. You know, people have the right to privacy, right to you know not to be killed. You know, there's, there's certain basic things that we can agree upon, and you can start from some very self-evident first principles and and develop with sort of careful thought and philosophy an ethical system that it can is certainly constantly you know being revised and debated but can be the basis of you know a system of ethics upon which you can base laws and a rational society morality is i i think more in the realm of personal choice um it's how you choose the standards by which you choose to live your life and if you want to base that on a religious faith that's fine go right ahead but it's not necessarily something that you can logically Argue or demonstrate to anybody else as as an as a um, cultural imperative, uh, and if again, I think that would be a distinction between 
you know, similar to that between science and religion. You know, between science and faith, you could make the dif- distinction between sort of ethics, which is philosophy-based, and, and morality, which is either choice or faith-based. It's also been my personal experience since I've gotten involved, uh, you know, with the whole skeptical movement, um, you know, now uh, a decade ago. It's is that the people who uh, sort of advocate organized atheism and secularism are, are, are quite fanatic and uh, disquieting and off-putting and I think that they don't do they do not deliver their message well and I think that it's uh, extra baggage that the scientific skeptical movement simply does not need and, and that's why I, I oppose the union of them as, as Dr. Kurtz sees it and I, I remember when we were up at the, the headquarters of, of PSYCOP in uh Upstate New York, and I remember in Buffalo. I remember running into a a handful of militant atheists, and very off-putting. You know, so just so so forceful and adamant and uh, in your face. You know, it's just uh, it's. Although of course, some people think that about us. (laughs) About skeptics, perhaps so. Perhaps so. But but anyway, so even by our jaded standards, they were they were a little bit rough. But I think the there is a difference in I think background and demeanor and. What they're interested in, I think a lot, certainly this is anecdotal, this is our personal experience, but a lot of the people who are involved with organized atheism or secular humanism are really angry at religion. They're really, uh, either have a personal story where they were in some way harmed uh, or repressed or oppressed, whatever, as a child by a religious figure or or a, a tyrannical religious faith. Um, or their their philosophy is is just so adamantly anti-faith that it be, you know becomes a very emotional thing for them. Very emotional, extremely emotional. I think more so than skeptics. I think we tend to have a more of a scientific background, and we care mainly about defending science. Just like for myself personally, I really couldn't care less what other people have as their personal faith. It's an internal personal choice. Right. Who cares? It really does not bother me. I, I'm interested in defending science and reason and logic. Whenever, when any, if anyone makes a factual claim, a claim about the factual state of nature, then they step into the ring of science. Then they're fair game. But if they're, you know, talking about you know, personal faith in the unknowable, they're outside the realm of science, and I really couldn't care less. That's which is why I'm involved in organized skepticism, but not organized, you know, uh, secularism. secularism. Atheism. You know, even though I'm, I, I consider myself an agnostic, it's just not something I care to put my time and effort into. Which is fine. Again, I think that's why. I, again, I, I am. I, I wish these secular humanists well, and I, I certainly am. I, I, I certainly support their their philosophy and their beliefs and what they're doing, I just don't think that I need to take it on as a skeptic. And that's what it really comes down to, is the secular humanists, to some degree, feel like skeptics need to be fighting for their banner, too, that they're one and the same. And they kind of resent it when we won't do that. It's like, why won't you take on religion? It's just as bad as UFOs and Bigfoot. It's like, yeah, but it's different, you know, because... Plus, there's also the the fact that, you know, as, as tough as it is to... Dissuade people, of, you know, of their beliefs in, in paranormal phenomenon. Religion is a much, much tougher nut than than anything we're dealing with. I th- I think it, to the end, to the last day that humanity survives, 
whether it be you know a century or a thousand millennia, there's we're still gonna we're, the people will still have faith, and that's just so hard coded into our into our brains that perhaps I, I don't think that's going to be like the last you know one of the last things to go. It's just too comforting. Maybe you know maybe once we're all uh, once we all live for millennia, it won't people won't uh, concern themselves with it as well, much. Well, you can still be a, a good uh, scientific skeptic and, and maintain faith. You know, they're not incompatible. Right. That's not that's as far as our, our movement goes. Certainly not. That's true. Nor have I ever seen somebody involved in scientific skepticism uh, demanding that organized atheists or secularists uh, defend our banner. Mm-hmm. It's a one-way street there. Yeah, and you know what? And they don't. You know, there is a difference in uh, in agenda about. There's admittedly a great deal of overlap between the two groups. About seventy percent, by you know surveys, seventy percent of of self-identified skeptics are also non-believers. You know, also either atheists or agnostics or secularists. And about the same is true of secular humanists, you know, although I think a lot of them, more of them consider themselves skeptics, some of them are amenable to a lot of superstitious beliefs, you know, a lot of them are, are enamored of alternative medicine or acupuncture or sort of Eastern spirituality, and even when confronted on this, say, well, this is not religion because it's a different culture, it's, you know, it's, it's Eastern, it's not, it's not yeah. Western, which is kind of silly. That was a surprise when I realized that. I was like, whoa. Yeah, so, it, again, there's, a, there's a, certainly a tremendous overlap. I think that, you know, the majority of both groups are in, are members of both groups, are both skeptics and non-believers. But, you know, as skeptics, we need to be tolerant of what people profess as their personal faith. Again, you know, I think we have to respect uh, the freedom of religion, the freedom to believe whatever you want to believe. And if it's outside the realm of uh, of science, then it's not amenable to the rules of evidence. And then the only other thing you could really demand of, of a belief system is that it's internally logical. It does not sort of contradict right. itself. But if it's a belief in that's something that's unknowable, unanswerable, and just a, in and of itself, like Martin Gardner, I, I believe, considered himself a deist, Martin Gardner is one of the founders of modern skepticism. Says, yeah, he believes in God, but that's it. That's that's the beginning and the end of his belief. He does not make any factual claims about the state of nature. He's still a, a thorough materialist in terms of how the universe works, mm-hmm. and that belief is based on just personal desire and faith, not any evidence, not any logic. He doesn't think that he can prove to you that God exists or that there's any evidence that he exists. It's not a scientific claim in any way, and fine, if that's the kind of faith that you maintain, if you basically strip from it any factual claims, any scientific claims, then it's benign, and who cares? That's, uh, it's not that's rare, though. That's unfortunately it's not relevant to the pretty discussion. rare. Um, so to move on, the second skeptic that I uh, alluded to at the beginning of the podcast who passed away within the last couple of weeks is Robert Baker. Um, by coincidence, we, we brought his name up at the last podcast when we were discussing the book by the, uh, the Harvard psychiatrist who was talking about, um, what was his name, is that Clancy? Who was discussing the psychological aspects of people who believe they were abducted. Robert Baker was um, also a psychop fellow, and he was one of the world preeminent academic authorities on ghosts, alien abductions, apparitions, reincarnation, etc. He actually, he's one of the people who 
raise the level of skepticism of these things to really the level of academic legitimacy. He served a really key role within the skeptical movement. It's one thing to, you know, analyze the claims of, you know, UFO abductees from a skeptical point of view. It's another thing to do psychological research to show what the the psychological phenomenon is. And that's kind of what what Robert Baker did. Um, Certainly his... uh, his writing and his influence and his contribution to these areas of skepticism will be greatly missed. Is he the progenitor of the fantasy prone personality? Yes, he he is you know one of the progenitors uh, along with Joe Nickel, who's also a psychopathologist, mm. of the idea of a fantasy prone personality. Basically, recognizing that certain people have a heightened tendency to fantasize and may actually have a tendency to you know not recognize. The, the where their own fantasies end basically and where reality begins. Um, he some of Baker's books include they call it hypnosis, hidden memories, uh, voices and visions from within, child sexual abuse and false memory syndrome. He also was one of the early critics of of the so-called false memory syndrome that proponents called recovered memory syndrome. And he also, I think, believe his most recent book was written with Joe Nickel. No, I'm sorry, this is not his most recent one. This was written in 1992 with Joe Nickel. He wrote Missing Pieces, How to Investigate Ghosts, UFOs, Psychics, and Other Mysteries. Excellent book. book. Steve, did he uh, actually coin the phrase, there are no haunted places, only haunted people? Was that Baker? Did he coin that? I don't. I don't know if I don't know if that is attributable to him. It may be. I've heard that before. I don't know if it was him or Joe Nickel. Right. Or maybe it was just in their book, and I don't know which one it was. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good phrase. There's no such thing as a haunted, a haunted location. There are only haunted people, right. which very succinctly highlights the fact that you know haunting phenomenon are generated by people who believe in it. Essentially, right. they're, they're not. There's no such thing as an actual haunted house. Missing Pieces is um, certainly the best book I've ever read on the basics of investigating the paranormal. It is an excellent primer for anyone out there who is considering doing uh, investigations in their local area. Well, why don't we move on to science or fiction? It's time to play Science Science or Fiction. (laughs) So each week, uh, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two of them are genuine. One is fake, uh, fictitious, made up, and and false. Um, I then challenge my panel of, of scientifically literate skeptics <laughs> to figure out which one is fake. Challenge accepted. So far, uh, you got, I think that you're doing better than, than 33%, <laughs> which is what you would get from random guessing. But I think you guys are running around 50% so far. You're doing oh, yeah. good. Doing, I think probably even better than 50%. You're doing, you're doing fairly well. Okay. There is a theme this week. Yeah. I've been doing themes recently. I think it's fun. This week, the theme is our solar system. Now, this is to celebrate or commemorate the discovery of yet a new planet. Sedna. That's not going to be one of the items. No, No, not Sedna. And because I know you guys all know about this, at least I thought you did. Uh, This is the first planet larger than Pluto to be discovered in our solar system since the discovery of Pluto. Ha- have they given it a name yet? No, I've just heard of, you know, a technical designation. No, nothing. Uh, I heard, right. I've heard suggestions, but nothing ironclad. I mean, there's still debate whether it's a planet. You know? Yeah. So, uh, oh. Well, is it, if, if I recall, it's, it's 
About three or four times farther out from the sun than Pluto. Right. But it's larger than Pluto. That far, Steve? Three or four times? How does it maintain the orbit? It, it seems remarkable. Hey, that's... Gravity you sucks. You can maintain... Evan, gravity sucks. <laughs> you can maintain the orbit up to a couple of light years. Basically, yeah. until you until you get closer to another star than our star, you you will be, you know, to some degree trapped within the gravitational field of the Earth. And don't forget, at that distance... I mean, at the sun. At that distance, I mean... You know, everything in our solar system attracts it. I mean, our sun is 99% of it, but still, we've got Jupiter. On the NASA website, Bob, it's still calling it 2003 right. UB313. Yeah. Yeah, so that it says um, it's three times further farther away from the sun than Pluto. Ah, three I, times. I trust that site. Wow, that's farther than I thought. Pluto yeah. takes about, Does Pluto take about 200 years to go around the sun? Yeah. 240, I think, is, is its year, 240 years. Yeah, somewhere around there. Probably a bit chilly. quite chilly. For part and of its dark. orbit, it's actually within the orbit of Neptune. So for a while, it, it's actually not the farthest of the original nine planets. Right. 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 Um, so I want to give you three other facts, um, either recently discovered or known about our solar system. Item number one, and again, remember, don't answer until I'm done with all three items. All right. Number one, the rings of Saturn have their own atmosphere. Number two, one of the asteroids in the asteroid belt, you know, between Mars and Jupiter, is large enough to have its own moons. And number three, an active volcano has been discovered on Saturn's moon Titan, making it only the third world in the solar system to have active volcanoes. If you can name the other two for bonus credit on that one. So, Io is one. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the other one? Um, active volcanoes, huh? Active volcano. Oh, oh, active. Uh, yeah. Mars active. has Olympus Mons, but that's not active. No. Uh, Mount St. Helens. Oh, Earth. Earth. The Earth. Ah. <laughs> the Earth. <laughs> Very good. Earth and Io are oh, the other one. Anyway, Perry, why don't we start with you? Uh, sure. Uh, the volcano sounds perfectly fine. The uh, moon around um, asteroids? Sure, there's some big asteroids out there. Uh, what's the thing about Saturn? The the, the dust so is has what? The rings of Saturn. The rings of Saturn have their own atmosphere. Well, from what I know about the rings, I mean, uh, it's just a bunch of uh, debris. You know, atmosphere can be pretty tenuous. Um, you know, an asteroid, how would you tell if it had moons? I mean, you know, it's not just more junk up there. I guess I'd say I, I, the one about Saturn sounds a little farther out to me. That one's okay, so you false. think the the rings of Saturn having their own atmosphere is the fake one? I think so. Okay, Evan. Uh, I'm going to agree with Perry this week. I think. Okay. Uh, I think um, number two, the moons of uh, asteroids, is entirely feasible. It's a lot of material out there, and some pretty big asteroids that would not surprise me at all that uh, some other satellites, some very small satellites have uh, taken orbit around s one of the larger asteroids. And um, the third one just, uh, again, also sounds uh, very plausible to me, whereas the, uh, the rings of Saturn, the first one, always believed to be ice and mud, yet uh, to say it has its own atmosphere is a stretch. So... I'll agree with Perry and say number one is the incorrect one. 
Alrighty. Bob? Tough one, Steve. Um, let's see. Rings, the Rings of Saturn have their own atmosphere. That's, that's damn bizarre. I, I mean, you've got particles from, you know, bigger than a bus or a house to, to dust moat sized. I mean, you could, I mean, you, this, the smaller the particles get, the more you could say is gaseous, and therefore you could say, oh, it's got an atmosphere. Um, but the accumulated mass of the rings would be significant, but the gravitational pull would be pretty dif- pull would be pretty diffuse. I don't know about that one. That's uh, that's bizarre. I, I don't like that one at all. Uh, the the asteroid that has a moon that that's this, this is going to be a uh, a semantic thing. Because I don't think an asteroid could have a moon. It could have. It could be binary asteroids orbiting around each other. But um. Right, just to clarify, I said moons, plural. Tell me again exactly the quote then. One of the asteroids in the asteroid belt is large enough to have its own moons, plural. Well, Ceres, C E R E S, is the largest. Is the largest asteroid in the uh, the meteor belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's a hundred miles across. Doesn't doesn't get any bigger than that in the asteroid belt. A hundred miles, I mean, that the the gravitational pull of a of a rock that big, I mean, you could jump and go into orbit. Right, it's a pretty weak it's gravitational pretty weak. pull. So I mean, I, I conceivably a tiny tiny bits of rock, you know, could maybe I don't I guess it's possible, but calling it a moon. What's the definition of a moon? Well, it's yeah, that's 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 a tough one too because I mean we call our moon a moon, but it's really the satellite. It's, it's really more of a binary planetary system because there's no other. I mean, there's no other planet except maybe Pluto that's got Pluto a satellite. Sharon, yeah. yeah, a satellite that's so close in mass to the primary planet. You could you could really. I mean, look at Mercury. I mean, I think the moon is Mercury's only a little bit bigger than uh, than uh, than our moon, and then there's a. Mm. Uh, there's some pl- Titan. Titan is uh, actually bigger than Mercury, so it's you know it's a lot of, a lot of fuzz, a lot of gray areas. Uh, you could tell I'm uh, stalling. Um, <laughs> let's see, active volcano Titan. That's entirely plausible. Um, it's a it's an uh, it's a satellite of Jupiter. Right? Saturn. Saturn. Oh, okay. It's a satellite. It's the largest moon in the solar right, system. I know it's that. a satellite of Saturn. Okay. Forgetting which one that one's orbiting. All right, I wonder now. Because it's so close to such a huge gas giant, I mean the tidal forces, depending on its orbital distance, is so huge. I mean that's why some of these moons have so many volcanoes because they're the tidal forces are just turning the planets inside out. So they're so incredibly active that it, like any any surveys you have of the surface are like out of date within a very brief mm-hmm. brief period of time. I mean, yeah, you're describing Io basically. Right, Io. But I mean Titan. I mean, it's it's orbiting around Saturn, a, a, another huge planet with an immense gravitational pull. So it, the tidal forces could be enough to for it to have a volcano. Although, I'm why sorry, Mister Novellone, must go over your answer. <laughs> <laughs> your, your time is up. I'm going to go with an active volcano on Titan. It's yeah, you think that's a fake yeah, one? It's too plausible. <laughs> okay. okay. So you're going to start with number two. Does um, no one pick me? Just Everyone agrees that number two is is accurate. Then, uh, right, so that's my that's my amateur opinion. Yes, right. nomenclatures. So let, right, let's start with number two then. Number two is in fact correct. There you go. 
Now, you know, Bob, you're right. I mean, there's, there's, in that, there's um, a fuzzy line between two objects sort of entangled in each other's gravity and something that could be meaningfully be called a moon. However, astronomers are calling these uh, two satellites moons. Also, what's unique is that this is the first this is the first asteroid triplet discovered. There are yeah. many there are many doublets. There are many times where there are two asteroids that are you know obviously re, you know um, revolving about the sun, but are also revolving about each other. They are they are caught in each other's gravitational right. pull. Now I wonder if it was part of a one big asteroid that broke up and just kind of stayed within gravitational influence. Now they, of each no, other. It, does, it, it seems more these were captured. Captured, okay. Uh, this the, the asteroid is 280 kilometer wide, body called 87 Sylvia, first sighted in 1866. Um, scientists have spotted um, four years ago. They spotted that it had the, the first moon. And now they've discovered the second moon of the same asteroid, of the 87 Sylvia, making it the first uh, triplet. They are, they are, the, the size difference is enough that, and that they are calling those smaller satellites okay, yeah. asteroids right. moons of, of 87 okay, Sylvia. Now wait, a little asteroid trivia. Whenever they show an asteroid <laughs> bell in, a, in, a, in science fiction movies, without yes. fail, they show immense boulders hurtling... Right. Around in very close proximity to each other, all going in different with different tra- trajectories, which is which is pretty visually interesting. But of course, if you think about it, pretty damn silly because how long would it take for all those asteroids to be so far apart that you wouldn't even see one when you if you were on top of the other one? And that's exactly how it is in our asteroid belts. If you were riding along on an asteroid and you looked around, you would not see any other asteroid nearby. So it's they're they're pretty sparsely populated out there, but still. You're saying when Han Solo went flying through that asteroid, belt, <laughs> that he was not flying through the asteroid, our, our, our asteroid belt. Well, it's yeah. a galaxy far, far yeah, away now. I don't saw forget. It with my own eyes. <laughs> now, cause some, other, some other facts about this asteroid just uh, that are interesting. The the names of the two moons are Romulus and Remus. <laughs> oh, the founders of Rome. <laughs> um. Yes, yeah, also the two planets in the uh, the Contract, Romulan planetary yeah. system. Right, um, also, the density of the of the the larger um, asteroid Silvis is only twenty percent higher than that of water, so it's pretty light. Mm. This, this, uh, Sylvia, and astronomers think that it is a so-called rubble pile asteroid, mm. which means that it's not one solid. Rock. It's actually a, a bunch of rocks that are stuck together by their mutual gravitational pull. Remarkable. But it's not the gravitational pull is not strong enough to fuse them together like it would with a larger world. Uh, and that these two moons are probably um, this, the debris from the same collision that created the rubble pile. Is, is one of the, one of the theories. But they, that they were captured by the later captured by the gravitational pull of, of Sylvia. Hmm. So interesting. So Thanks. we're down to the rings of Saturn and the and the and the volcano on on Titan. The rings of Saturn. Yeah. Now, when <laughs> I when I read this, I knew this had to be a science. <laughs> this is true, guys. Oh, I, yeah. it, it struck me as odd too. But uh, the Cassini spacecraft, right. which has been investigating the majestic rings of Saturn, as NASA likes to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> has detected 
The instruments on Cassini, Cassini has detected uh, that there is, an, in fact, an atmosphere within the rings of Saturn. The atmosphere is not an extension of Saturn's atmosphere. It is a distinct, its own distinct atmosphere. But could it be just uh, absolutely minuscule chunks of the rings themselves? I mean... I mean, it's really just what ice and rock, right? It's not minuscule chunks. It's actually molecular oxygen, so it's a gas. And that defines an Mole- atmosphere? Molecular oxygen. Interesting. They say that it's very similar to the atmospheres, the very, very uh, faint atmospheres that have been discovered on Europa and Ganymede. Oh, so it's a remnant of the, uh, of the satellite that m- might have broken up. And well, this is a different rain. planet now, Bob. Um, but it's just, it could be similar or similar origins. No, but I'm, phenomena. Sa- I'm saying, I mean... I mean, what, what's the leading theory as to the uh, the genesis of these Saturn's rings? It might yeah, uh, so right. It might have been possible a moon came too close, you know, right? And tidal forces ripped it apart. Ripped it apart. But, um, but it, it could be a, it could be a remnant of the atmosphere of that that's moon. That's what I meant. That's what I yeah, meant. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. That's interesting. I think it's quite obvious that the craft is malfunctioning for <laughs> a long time in space. Does actually false data. Did you know? I heard. I. I was watching a very interesting show on Discovery, and uh, they were discussing about debris orbiting a planet after after a collision. And there's a there's a limit. I believe it's called the Roche limit. That if the debris is within this limit, uh, orbiting a planet, that the debris will slowly rain down back on the planet. And um. if, it's out, if it's outside that that limit, the Roche limit, it'll go in permanent orbit. And this the show claimed um, that. The the, uh, the rings of Saturn are within the Roche limit of Saturn, and eventually the rings will rain down on Saturn and disappear. Right. And I believe that's what happened to the ring around Earth when we when we used to have a ring, you, well, know, sta- you know, decades ago. Or, Stand I mean, by over the next 20 years or 30 million years. We'll see what happens to those rings. Uh, actually, one of the, um, according to the article on NASA, one of the hypotheses as to the origins of the this oxygen atmosphere is that, is that uh, water is essentially vaporized by sunlight off of um, some of the ice within the rings, mm-hmm. and the huh. sunlight splits it into hydrogen and atomic oxygen uh, and molecular oxygen, and then the, the hydrogen and atomic oxygen are lost, leaving behind molecular oxygen, which then clings to the rings as an atmosphere. Interesting. I don't know. I have a problem calling calling it an atmosphere, but right, well, write an e- send an email to NASA. <laughs> um, I I agree. Obviously, these are stretching the definitions right. of what's a moon, what's an atmosphere. These are right. things that are on the edge. It's just a gas um, that happens have a, to be in orbit along with the other parts of the ring. Okay, the third one is uh, a volcano on Titan. It's just false. It's just not true. Now, there's Bob. You you know you hit it on the head in terms of. Uh, Io's, the, why there are active volcanoes on Io, which is actually the only other place in the solar system where there is an active volcano other than the Earth. It's because Io is pretty close to the the, 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 right. the limit, the La Roche limit. If it were any closer to Jupiter, it would be broken up and just become another ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tidal forces of Jupiter are pushing and pulling on Io so that it's molten continuously and it's basically turning itself inside Literally, out. Yep. So it's constantly spewing, you know, essentially volcanic material, sulfur largely, onto, you know, from its core on that back onto its surface. The only other f- cause of an active volcano is if you have a planet whose core is still molten from its origin. Right. Uh, and therefore there's plate tectonics and fissures and volcanoes. And a magnetic field. And, and perhaps a magnetic field. The only 
you know, rocky world that still has that in our solar system is Earth. Both Venus and, and Mars, our, our closest uh, neighbors in size and location, have long, their crust has long since solidified over. Mm-hmm. So they know, they have, there's evidence of both Venus and Mars that they had volcanoes in the past, well, Olympus, but they're not active. Right, Olympus Mons is the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest volcano in, in the solar system. Yes. It's bigger than, uh, you know, Everest, I believe. Yes, no, it's, it's huge, it's yeah, but not active. Titan is definitely too small to have, uh, you know, to Plate- have yeah, a crust that is, that is not yet solidified. Um, because you can calculate, you know, how many years it, would, it takes, you know, right. f- for these planets to solidify. Uh, so the only hope for Titan is that the it's similar would be that it would be similar to Io in that tidal forces are keeping the plates active. It's too far but away. I think it's too far away. Right. Yeah, it's too far away from Saturn for that. So, uh, you know, we haven't found any active volcanoes on Titan, and I and we don't expect to. If we did, then that would be a big surprise. That would be news. Maybe next week we will discover that. And my uh, yeah, right. My, I'll add another notch to my yeah. my prophecy belt. So anyway, that is the fake one for, for this week. The theme was the solar system. You guys did a pretty good job of thinking about the issues, but this, I think this was, I've kept it pretty challenging. So Evan, you were telling me that uh, you were looking over some of the, the books uh, that others have bought for your two-year-old daughter, Rachel. Why don't you tell us about them? I was going through her books the other day, and she's, of course, you know, in her two years has received a lot of books. She's developed quite a library. And two books that just happened to be right next to each other on the shelf were two books. One's called On the Day You Were Born, and the other book's called God Made You Special. So the first book, On the Day You Were Born, I open it up, and I'll just read you a couple passages about uh, what they've written in here. Very nice pictures, very nice drawings. And it reads, On the day you were born, the round planet Earth turned towards your morning sky, whirling past darkness, spinning the night into light. On the day you were born, gravity's strong pull held you to the earth with a promise that you would never float away. On the day you were born, a forest of tall trees collected the sun's light in their leaves, where in silent mystery they made oxygen for you to breathe. While close to your skin and high as the sky, air rushed and blew about, invisibly protecting you and all living things on earth. This is a book of, obviously, explaining natural science in a nice, presentable way for a young mind to understand. And they, in the back, in sort of an index form, they talk a little bit more about all the subjects they cover in the body of the book. Mm -hmm. They explain what pulling gravity is. For instance, every object in the universe is pulled to every other object. This force is, an, is this force of attraction is called gravity. Even though all objects attract each other, people are most affected by the pull from the closest, most massive object, which is the Earth. And it goes on, of course. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's definitely never too early to to um, nurture, you know, curiosity and interest in science and the natural world in young ones. I think, especially at that age, kids have a natural curiosity that. Uh, can erode as they get older unless it is nurtured, in my opinion. It definitely can. It was a wonderful gift from a good friend, and you know, I was very, uh, very happy to have received that for Rachel's library. But it contrasts sharply with the other book that you had noticed. The other book, called God Made You Special, is also very colorful, 
And this one explains the origins of vegetables with uh, characters like Larry the Cucumber, Bob the Tomato. Shouldn't it be Tim the Tomato? <laughs> you think so. Chris the Cucumber. Archie the Asparagus. explains the origin of vegetables? Not yes, <laughs> it does. Well, let me, let, me, let me read for you. What the, well, what Terry, now, some people, some people are vegetables. So. I suppose. Uh, that's fine. Here Continue. we go. I'm Archie the Asparagus. I'm reading from the book now. Oh, that makes sense. Archie the Asparagus. <laughs> like most other veggies, I'm also quite green. Like Larry, referring to the cucumber before, I have neither hips nor a chin, so God made me special by making me thin. <laughs> um, let's go to Larry. Let's see. I'm Larry the cucumber. I'm here to say that God made me special in his own special way. God made me special by making me green. Without any hips, I'm tall and I'm lean. God made us special. It's part of his job. And to say how he's special, here's my friend Bob. And it continues, and it goes through a lot of vegetables. And all of them were, well, according to this book, created by God. So what we effectively have here in comparing these two books is what I consider uh, the battle for my child's mind as far as what she's going to be learning as she's grown up and, as, and, and believe, and believe yeah. at these, at, especially at these early stages. I mean, it's going to be up to me later um, when she gets a little bit more of a grasp of these things. She's going to come and ask me, did God make tomatoes? Did God create all the vegetables? Did God create me? Right. And I now have to go back and, and explain the, the differences between you know between the two um, and you know someone like myself and of course Steve you're a parent Bob you're a parent we have we have the uh, tools as skeptics to be able to differentiate and rationally explain to our children uh, what exactly is going on here but um, sadly unfortunately most parents out there who will have the same book on their shelf will have uh, no tools and uh, no skills to explain to their children really what's going on here. Certainly the, the topic of you know indoctrinating or teaching young children is, can be a very emotional one. I think people feel compelled to, to pass on their belief system to the next generation, which is fine if it's your own kids. That's every parent's prerogative. But it is interesting how you know, friends and relatives you know, sort of passive-aggressively you know, buy you gifts of books for your children that are really designed to indoctrinate them into their beliefs, you know, even if they are not in line with, with your own beliefs. As a, my daughters, you know, they're, they're six and almost three now, and there's, they have a, a few books on their shelf that they're not, they're not bad, like, you know, endorsing creationism or anything like that, but they're um, certainly endorsing the po- politics and philosophy of the person who gave the book, even though they're, they're not quite in line with my own. One um, that stands out is called My Daddy is a Pretzel, and it's all about yoga. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with you know, yoga as a form of exercise or stretching, but, you know, some people attach a lot of spirituality mysticism. and mysticism to, to yoga, and the book sort of endorses that. It's not exactly the kind of book that I would prefer for my children, although I think that they're, the, even the older, my older daughter, Julia, who is six, doesn't pick up on the sort of mystical aspect of the book. She think, just thinks it's funny that, you know, this person's being twisted into a lot of different yeah, it's shapes. Interesting. But it's funny. Um, because she's not aware of, you know, how can she be? They're, I mean, these are, these are children. Yeah. They, 
they're they're not aware yet at the same time it it starts to i think develop sort of a base in their mind by which they'll start to build other beliefs based on for instance mysticism based yeah. on creationism these things will start to perhaps add up in their mind and and it just becomes right, right. uh becomes that's much more challenging for a parent who cares about differentiating between uh, faith and science. Well, as you mentioned, Evan, I'm, uh, I am the only one here who's child-free, but do the three of you plan on raising your daughters, you all have daughters, um, uh, in a non-religious environment? Uh, that, yeah, I, I certainly do, and that's cause just I, that's my faith or lack thereof. Um, I see no reason why you know, people who have a particular faith are expected to and are certainly granted the right to raise their children in their faith. And yet, you know, why shouldn't I as an agnostic raise my children, you know, at least you know, within their own, their own choice, to tell them that I'm an agnostic, this is why I'm an agnostic, this is, you know, uh, I think what makes most sense. Um, they're ultimately going to make up their own mind. But I, I think some parents who are non-believers uh, and whether either in and of themselves or they feel the pressure from society like somehow there's this double standard where it's okay to indoctrinate a child into faith but it's not okay to indoctrinate them into no faith and I, I think that that's wrong I think it's a double standard um, my plan is you know, to expose my daughters to a lot of ideas so she has to know that this is what people believe in fact just tonight I was reading her a bedtime story about the soles of your feet and the palms of your hand and, what, and it was talking about the lines in your hand and I was telling her you know some people believe that you can tell things about people's life and personality from the lines in their hands isn't that silly and she started laughing because yeah that's really silly so I, I don't mind you know letting her know how I feel about things uh, I also think it's really important to, although I think that the book that you were quoting is very good, to sort of, and I have lots of books like that for my daughters about the universe and about the animals and about the ocean that gets them interested in just knowing a lot of facts about animals. But I think it's also important, uh, and in fact, I was giving a lecture about skepticism and science to some um, high school science teachers, and they asked me you know, what, what my opinion was about how to teach children science. And what I said was, I think it's important to teach them to ask questions, you know, not to accept things authoritatively. And when they do ask a question, not to give them an authoritative well, that's answer. Well, that's certainly my opinion on this. I know Ra Rachel, you know, will soon be entering an age in the next coming years in which I'm going to be bombarded with a lot of questions. I want, I want to yeah. be able to, like you said, have her, have her think about it, think about the possibilities. Right. Um, yet at the same time, I'm not about to endorse something that I know obviously isn't true, like that God created right. vegetables and that... Uh, yeah, I don't think you should feel any pressure to also. If that's not in line with your worldview, you shouldn't be, feel obligated to, to expose your child to it in a favorable way. Um, I do think, in terms of getting back to, the, to children asking science questions, though, I think it's a great opportunity to teach them to be critical thinkers. And my approach has been... When you know, my older daughter Julia asks, you know, she's six, so she's already asking a ton of questions about why is this and why is that. Is to again, rather than just say, giving her the answer, you know, first I give her a lot of positive feedback for asking the questions. Like, wow, that's a great question, Julia. Really, you're thinking about that. And then ask her back, well, how could we possibly know about that? How is how would we know? 
and then we sort of work it out together. And, and the stuff she comes up with is really fascinating. She she clearly can think, you know, very you know abstractly and, and creatively. It's pretty uh, good about for six. Things. So I I guess the goal then is to really is to teach them to be critical thinkers and let religion yeah, take totally. care of itself. I think and I think it would, but. You know, it's always a risk. Uh, you know, I, I do. Uh, one um, secular humanist parent uh, told me that they basically took the approach of what you just said: teach them to be critical thinkers, but basically say nothing about religion, and then their children will grow up and make up their own mind, which they're going to do anyway. And they, and it turned out that you know his daughter became a Buddhist, mm-hmm. and he was not happy about that. Um, and he thought, in wow. retrospect, that perhaps he made a mistake by by leaving it so open-ended. I, again, I don't have the answer. I'm certainly not telling people what to do when mm. it comes to that. But the, his conclusion was, I, I, if I had to do it over again, I would have indoctrinated her into non-belief, basically. Uh, again, I, I don't believe in strong indoctrination of children. I think, again, I agree with you, Perry. I think that leading people to critical thinking uh, is... Uh, is the way to go, but again, I think that what I what I'm going to choose to do is to do that, but at the same time, let my I'm not going to shy away from telling them what I believe and what I feel. Well, I'm going to. And how straightforward are you, Steve? To your oldest, how I mean, how straightforward have you been with her? Do you do you say? At- I've told her flat out. Some people believe that there is God, and because she's heard right. about this concept from her her friends, you know, and neighbors, and but you know, mommy and daddy don't believe in that. And we don't think we think that the world you know occurred naturally, and you know her her responses on it are that so far are very superficial and childlike. She's not really expressing any kind of you know opinion about it. It's just you, so often she'll look away and then she'll start talking about something completely right. unrelated. You know, so who, who, but who that knows doesn't mean that what's well, really but going that doesn't mean you're mind. not having an impression on her now. Which, right. which right. You know, we'll, we'll see. see how it how it plays out in the next couple of years. We, we will but see. Also, you're kind of yeah. lucky because uh, you you and your wife both are are agnostics. Where my situation right. is different. Where uh, I'm I'm an agnostic and my wife is. Somewhat religious, not not very at all, but st- she believes in God. She's a Christian, yeah, and uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not like we go to church every Sunday or anything like that, or or she does. It's very right. rare that they actually go. But so it puts me in a little bit of a of a tougher position. And what I've been doing is just um, just following her lead and seeing and seeing what she comes up with. And I'm actually waiting for some. I don't know. At some point, I'm going to get much more sh- much more straightforward yeah. with her. But she's come out with a couple things that. Yeah, tell you told me one about. Tell us that. Uh, we, out of the blue, out of the blue, she just said um, something to the effect of, you know, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't believe wow. in God. And of course, my jaw hit the floor. And I'm and I'm like, well, you know, why? Why do you say that? She's like, well, I, how could you believe in God? I mean, what what about God's parents? And what about their parents? You know how you know where right. did they come from? And mm-hmm. and how could he? How could he make the world and all this stuff? And and as far as you know, she well, thought of that all on her own. Completely. I've asked her about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say where she gets ideas, but it seemed something that she'd been thinking about, and it, she seemed very genuine. It's very and, interesting. Uh, and I was very impressed with it. Yeah. And I said, and I told her, Ashley, that is a great question. You know, and I, I didn't immediately yeah. leap into, you're ding, 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 you got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her what she's won. I didn't do that yet. Let's go get <laughs> some ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I explained to her how, how right. a good question that is, and... Uh, kind of went from there, but uh, 
You know what else? Sometimes Julia will ask me a question, and it's something that I don't know the answer to. And I'll tell her, you know, sweetheart, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. Let's right. go find out. Or sometimes she'll ask a question that no one knows the answer to, and I'll tell her, nobody knows. That's a mystery that we haven't solved yet. Maybe you'll be the person to grow up and figure yeah. out what the answer is. So I think, and she's fascinated by the fact that adults are at all equal authority figures. Really? You know, like when mommy and daddy disagree on something, she totally hones in on that. It's like, huh. Mommy and Daddy disagree with each other. One of them has to be wrong. Steve, you're and that's fascinating. You and your wife her. disagree on things occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> it happens occasionally. So anyway, I'm trying to sow the right. seeds of you know not not uh, having absolute trust and authority, trying to figure things out for herself, feeling good about asking questions, thinking about not only what the answer is but how we know and how we could know and investigation is the way to find the answer, not just, you know, accepting it from an authority figure. And hopefully this will all bear the fruit that I, that I, I wish it to, but we'll, it, re, it so remains parent, to be seen. But it's, you know, so some advice for parents out there, pay attention to the books on the shelf, be pre- and be prepared <laughs> to be very patient with your children when it comes to, to these questions, and encourage them to uh, try to think it out uh, for themselves. And more often than yeah, not, I they'll think. eventually, they'll, they should reach the correct conclusions. Now, some people uh, ask me, many, many interviewers, you know, interview me about you know, running the Skeptical Society, and almost as like a humorous aside, reporters love asking this question, so do you tell your daughters about that there is no right. Santa Claus? Like, am I a total spoil sport? And I, what I tell them is, like, no, listen, they, they absorb a belief in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, you know, from the culture, from TV shows, and I let them have that. It's a magical, fun thing. I don't know, I really, I don't know if Julia really believes in Santa Claus or if she's going along with it because it's fun and it doesn't matter because... Like every like every other person, she'll figure it out when she right. grows up. That Santa Claus. Not, I have no fear that she'll be go go to be to an adult and still believe in Santa Claus. And in fact, I think, and some people have argued that that's a good experience for them. You know, they have this sort of belief in a magical godlike you know figure, Santa Claus, with lots of miraculous, really unscientific, unrealistic claims about what he can do. And as they grow older, they figure out that it's not real. And sometimes they might they might even conduct an experiment, like you know, staying up at night and seeing what. Right. I think it's just a, a warm, pleasant tradition. There's nothing wrong. Yeah, with yeah, it's a, yeah. My my family. I still celebrate Christmas with my wife. It's it's a time of uh, you know getting together with the family and appreciating you know, people that you love. So I mean, Bob and yes. Evan. Well, Evan, Evan, you're you're not no. Christian. You're Jewish. So the whole Santa Claus. No, but thing that doesn't, doesn't mean you know. You know, when I and thinking back on it, I can remember when I was seven, about seven years old or so, and yeah. I had form I had formulated my opinion about Santa Claus, even though you know, I, obviously, I was I was raised Jewish. I was I am Jewish, um, but I still had an opinion about Santa Claus, and I figured out then, I'm like, Santa Claus has to be an impossibility. How can he t- How can he fly? Right. How can he do what he does? Right. I, I, right. I was very skeptical about these things early early on, especially the myths. I never believed in a tooth fairy. I never, never had exposure or believed in an Easter bunny. A right. lot of these things, they don't have the equivalency in, in, in the Jewish religion, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, ex- mm-hmm. 
you know, they're more, they're really more biblically based than they are mm, sort there's of. There's no right. Hanukkah Harry. Right. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> no, there's not. There's nothing like that. But there are things like the spirit of Elijah that comes into your house during the celebration of Passover. Oh yeah. Um, I remember that. You're supposed uh, to leave the door Elijah, open or something. Right. That's correct. Elijah <laughs> being the the savior, the Jesus of the future for the Jewish people. That's who Elijah is. Right. Now, did you do you believe in Elijah as a child the same way that you have Christian? Init- initially, Santa I did, or? but I think by probably about the time I was nine or ten years old, I realized is is really when I pretty much abandoned uh, any lingering beliefs I had in 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 spirits and this that sort of. That sort of that sort of fantasy and aspect of, of the religion. Somewhat impressive coming from your household, I might add, Mister. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> <Seriously>. we, we <laughs> look. We all have our, our relatives and loved ones that here, uh, here, that, here, that, here. that you know cover a wide spectrum of beliefs, and uh, um, you know, my family is no stranger to that. One last point on this topic, and I think that we're we're out of time for the show. Um, there there has been a little bit of debate. Uh, among skeptics about what is the the natural state uh, for for people for humans in terms of are uh, are humans naturally scientific or naturally gullible now Carl Sagan took the position uh, that children are natural scientists they're curious he he would speak quite frequently at um, schools to to children because he enjoyed doing that and his observation was which I be- he writes about in one of his books I believe the demon haunted world uh, about young children in grade school uh, ask very good questions they're extremely curious they ask follow-up questions they're less inhibited uh, and then by the time you get to sort of the preteen and high school years, um, the students are, um, they don't ask very good questions. They're, they're, in fact, shy and inhibited. They're afraid of sounding stupid in front of their peers. And they're sort of encouraged to go along with the crowd and not be individuals and not think for themselves. So in his opinion... He says that we're basically born with the natural curiosity of scientists, but it, it gets beaten out of us by essentially an anti-intellectual and conformist Didn't culture. Sagan also write, and I can't recall what book it was, and I think someone had told me about it, that perhaps, though, there was an, an evolutionary advantage to, to people to have a belief in a supernatural being in an afterlife. And this somehow... Um, actually allowed our species to uh, live, a little, live a little bit longer than it would had it not um, embraced those sorts of Yeah, that, that gets to the whole evolutionary psychology thing, which I think is probably a topic for another show. But, you know, um, what are the evolutionary pressures that led to the hardwiring of the brain mm-hmm. as it is today? For example, we, we, we appear to be hardwired to believe in something transcendent beyond ourselves. Um, and that there's a lot of speculation that that enabled us to uh, essentially think of our group, our tribe, our people, our society as something bigger or greater than ourselves, and that there's an evolutionary advantage to that because if, if individuals sacrifice themselves for the greater good, there's an actual evolutionary advantage to that in terms of your own gene surviving into future generations because essentially you're saving your people who are closely related to you. 
Um, but that's very controversial. You might, you might remember that we spoke to um, Massimo Pellucci about that. He, he is not a fan of, of the evolutionary psychology because essentially their ideas are not testable. Um, so it's hard to, to, to do rigorous science on those ideas. But to, to finish my original point about Carl Sagan's model that we're sort of born scientists and it gets crushed out of us by society, uh, others have, have taken the opposite point of view, saying that science is more about being disciplined and that children are born with magical thinking um, without really understanding the rules of evidence or logic. We have a lot of inherent or ingrained sort of counterintuitive uh, thinking or illogical thinking, and again, or magical thinking, and that to be a scientist, you need to learn discipline, which only comes with training and maturity. Uh, so there, those two positions appear to be at odds, uh, although, and in fact, they, to Carl Sagan like argued in, in writing with proponents of the other view in his, in his own books. But I think that actually they're both right. I think that there's two primary characteristics to being a good scientific thinker. You need to have, be open-minded and curious and investigational, but you also need to be disciplined and rigorous. And one we're born with and needs to be nurtured and encouraged, and the other is learned and, and comes only with maturity and training. Uh, and it's the combination of the two, sort of the exuberant speculative, you know, imagination with, you know, the, the rigorous discipline of science. Sounds correct to me, Steve. And, and in fact, I think Einstein, you know, endorsed that point of view. Uh, he, his, he famously said that um, something to the effect that scientific discovery is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration by which he meant that you need to have the, that leap of imagination to think of things in a new way, but that's only, you're only 1% of the way there. You need to do the 99% of the hard work, the detailed, rigorous work, to show that it's actually correct. And it's that 99% perspiration that makes science and to, science. and to have the discipline and, the, and, and to know when, if you are following a theory or you're, or you're in pursuit of it, and you're coming up with... Uh, you know, evidence that is negative um, as far as uh, mm -hmm. supporting the theory, you have to right. be able to accept that. And, mm -hmm. uh, in, f in fact, if it does leave you nowhere, Absolutely. you have to be able to, you know, let it go and, uh, pers and pursue something else. And, and that's, where, that's where a lot of uh, even professional scientists, I think, uh, kind of lose their, lose their way. They're so, uh, sure. their well, they're so enamored. They're so enamored of their, their pet theories that... Uh, I mean, there's a saying, I wish I, m I remember the exact saying, something to the effect that, um, you, know, I, you know, theories and ideas change you know, when the new generation of scientists come up and the, and the, the, other, the other ones die. You know, because, because even, right. si even science... Advances are made on the graves of the older generation right. of scientists. I think that was probably more true in the past. Yeah. Uh, science is, so is progressing fast, yes. too rapidly for ideas to become too ingrained. It, it, it's still true, I think, to some degree, the fact that there are constantly new generations of scientists who have to make their career basically by doing something new uh, is, is good at driving the engines of change, the engines of innovation in science. But, you know, it's, I don't think it's any longer true that you really have to wait for the older generation of scientists to die right. before the new ideas can, can take any foothold. Um, 
So I think that is a good place to stop. Again, just to conclude, I think that my final thought was that 99%, the perspiration, that's a lot, basically what we're talking about a lot on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And I think it's that 99% that distinguishes genuine science from pseudoscience. Pseudoscientists are really good at the 1% about the inspiration, coming up with you know, neat-sounding, fantastical ideas uh, to explain things. But they really fall down when it comes to sort of the rigorous work, day-to-day work of science, sort of proving that their ideas are true or not true. So uh, with that final thought, again, Bob, Perry, Evan, thank you for joining thank me. Thank you, Steve. Our pleasure. Good night. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.thenes.com. Educate with science.